Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Jake, a Newcastle supporter. You can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two N's, and I work for EPL Index and The Boot Room. Hi, I'm Zach Forster, uh, the resident Liverpool fan here at EPL Index. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zach Forster underscore. All right, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Up first, we have to talk about Manchester City. Uh, today, they are crown champions through not what they probably dreamed of happening, which is Manchester United losing to West Bromwich Albion, who are currently 20th in the Premier League. Um, but that does mean that Manchester City are your Premier League champions for the 2017-18 season. Uh, they are still currently on pace to break 100 points, which, of course, no Premier League side has ever done. 2004-2005, Chelsea were the closest with 95 also looked like they could break 100 goals and potentially beat that Chelsea team, 0-9-10, uh, who managed 103. For you guys, where does this Manchester City team fit in the pantheon of the greatest English teams like the Invincibles and, and the treble winning sides of the past? I think it ranks pretty high. Um, I, there was a point around November, December that I thought they could potentially be the greatest Premier League team that we've ever seen this season. I don't think that's quite the case purely because of what's happened over the last few weeks, whether that's for fatigue or uh, tactical decisions from Guardiola against Liverpool and then against Manchester United, it's up for debate. But I think those three results really do cloud, take away from them being the best Premier League team of of the history. But I think they're definitely well on their way of becoming that if they continue to develop the way they are. Their attack has been ridiculous. The amount they've been scoring, their wins, the fact they've only lost twice is quite a quite a ridiculous record in the, in the Premier League. Um, their performance against Tottenham as well was, it was important just to show they could bounce back in such a big game because Spurs have been in such good form and, and the performance in that game was, was really good from City. They were completely, easily the better team and I think Tottenham it's, in 2018 have been very, very good and sort of back to their best and I think it was really quite an important mental victory for City to get that one. Um I think in the Champions League, it was just a bit of a perfect storm for Liverpool. They played really well and City looked very fatigued and it's just some weird tactical decisions helped Liverpool, but not take away from Liverpool. I think they, they absolutely deserve their place. But I think if we're talking completely about the Premier League, I think maybe there's a case, but I also think just what happens in Europe does come into it as well. And I think they've got a long way to go. To Not a long way, but they've got a way to go to become become sort of labelled as the best Premier League team there in history. The one thing I would say is that everyone sort of agrees the Premier League now there's, there's six strong teams in it. Whether Arsenal and Chelsea can really be considered strong teams is, a, is another debate but they, I'd say it's probably the most competitive at the top as it's ever been and the fact that it have been so far ahead it does does go a long way to, to supporting that claim but I still think, yeah, I, I think 
they've got a little way to go yet. And I think Guardiola needs to learn how to perhaps manage his squad a little better in terms of fitness and to keep them as fresh as possible for the, for the whole campaign. Because if if they had stayed at that very elite level, then yes, easily they they would they would be that right now. But I, I don't think they did. Uh, who is the greatest team for you then? I don't know. I think I think the 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 Mourinho team in sort of two thousand five six was was quite well four five to sort of five six as well was probably for me the greatest one purely just I I don't know why I think that but I just see the I just think that right now that's probably the one that sticks to mind the most mm. uh, and you could probably go back to the treble winning Manchester United team as well but I I just think if you're the greatest Premier League team of all time, you shouldn't be losing three successive games like City have done to English clubs recently. So that's mm. purely why I say that. Yeah, that offers up a great segue to you, Zach. Obviously, uh, the deliverer of two of those defeats. You've gotten to see Manchester City up close and personal uh, here in the last couple of weeks. What have you made of them in their season? Um, I think I agree with Jake in terms of how City seems to have faded in recent weeks. Um, one of the things that I was going to say was was that during that that absolutely unreal run that they put together um, at the end of 2017 after they beat Liverpool 5-0 and then onwards. Um, that was that was sort of like the best football I think I'd ever seen in the Premier League. But he wasn't changing his team too much, Guardiola. So I think, as, as Jake said, they have looked a bit jaded in recent weeks. Um, I feel also going on another one of Jake's points with Chelsea, he believes that Chelsea were the best team in the Premier League era. Um, I actually kind of agree with that in the sense that they're the only team where I've thought that no one, nobody would ever catch them. Um, obviously, some it's it's always going to change. The balance of power is always, always going to change eventually. So this City team will be caught in one, two, three years. Um, but this City team and that Chelsea team that Jake mentioned, they're the only two teams in the Premier League era where I've actually feared that no one would catch them and it would just become a dead rubber for 10 years obviously history shows that eventually these things do change um looking at city's actual season uh, i think we'll have to wait until the end of the season to truly look back on it um with you know the full accuracy um as it stands they're probably still one of the best teams anyway well they definitely are um because they've dropped the title with five games remaining um, like united did a few years back um if they finish with 100 points they'll have to be in, at least in the top three um, best Premier League teams of all times. I mean, I mean, 100 points is a ridiculous achievement if they if they can get that. And I, I think Guardiola is really going to try and push that um, to try and get there. Um, also, they, they've had the League Cup triumph as well, which was obviously a small a small percentage of their season, but it's still it's still going to be a double winning team. So yeah, I think they definitely were there with um, Arsenal's Invincibles, Chelsea's Mourinho team. Um, and also United side from, you know, around the 2008-2009, which had like Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney, Ferdinand and Vidic. So they're definitely up there. I, I'm going to say top three, but I think for me personally, even though they had troubles against Liverpool in the Champions League and then they had that poor game against United, uh, poor second half against United, sorry. Um, I feel like if they get to 100 points, I, I, for me, I'm going to say that they're the best team in the Premier League ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fair uh, assessment there. Um, I think it's really interesting because um, while I don't want to take anything away from from City fans, especially today of all days, having just won the title, but uh, I think kind of come the end of the season, once this has passed a bit, there may actually be a little bit of uh, of a crestfallen nature because, as you pointed out, Zach, there was that period in December where, what, they won 16 straight, I think it was, um, 
where like we had to talk about on the show about can they win the quadruple and as far as a team goes there was no reason why they couldn't although you both make a very good uh, point about um how they kind of ended up getting a bit jaded a little tired legged um which is a result of trying to chase that many competitions uh concurrently um but uh, (laughs) I'd, i'd be shooting my own argument in the foot about um, the enjoyment of watching your team play being important uh, as it relates to trophies because that's basically what Tottenham fans are relying on right now. And I, I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find any fan of any club ever that's enjoyed watching their team week in, week out, the way City fans have been able to feel about their club this season. Um, just just some absolutely brilliant football. If Aguero stays fit, um, maybe maybe then they can chase all four and end up being a bit more successful in that, but Aguero's not always fit. Same with company. They still have those kind of issues every now and again. Um, but uh, City fans should obviously be incredibly proud of what they've achieved today, and as a neutral, um, it, this is the title that's hurt the least <laughs> over the last two years. Um, and also, it was just incredible to watch that team, as long as they weren't playing us. Uh, although they did put a fair few goals past us, unfortunately, and it could have been way more earlier this week. Uh, and Jake put a, a great point forth earlier that Tottenham were on an incredible run of our own um coming into this city match and they pretty much dispatched us somewhat easily i I think their tactics were very very well designed to beat what we had been doing i think the chelsea match kind of put exactly what we were going to try to do against city on tape and you just can't reveal that much of what you're planning on doing to pep guardiola without him finding a way to to kind of kill you off and i think that's part of why this city team is so great is that 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 uh Signing of Pep Guardiola was obviously a, a big deal at the time, and it's proven to be an incredible one long term. And it's hard to see this team faltering. Uh, I know Zach, you mentioned that um, it's hard to imagine anybody catching up to them soon. Um, time will tell, as you said. That, you know these things kind of develop, but it's it, looking at this squad, looking at the average age of this squad. Obviously, you have Aguero and company that are kind of the older heads there now. David Silva as well. But, I mean, largely, they, over the last three years, have turned this from an old squad into a young one. And it's definitely going to be a a task for anybody to beat them in coming years. All right, next up, I wanted to talk about the uh, Young Player of the Year. um, Because uh, I'm starting to question the validity of the Young Player of the Year award. So, of the people nominated... um, Four of them have played over 100 Premier League matches. So for you guys, is it more important to you that they're just young, all of them obviously being under 25, which is the cutoff? Or should it be more reflective of new players to the league that are doing well or have developed significantly in that year? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Uh, I gave it a little bit of thought after seeing the running order. And, and I'm guessing that there's two approaches to this that you could take if you're going to change this award. Uh, one would be in name and one would be in in criteria, I guess. Uh, I do think I do think there's a valid point to that because I don't think, you know, that some of the players that are in the running for, for the Young Player of a year, year Award should be in it. I think it should be for maybe not players in their first season, but for in their first sort of real breakout season. And I thought about it as maybe a, a, a breakout of the year award, but I thought the name of it is not too catchy. And then mm. it, I guess for that, you could have players that are older that are coming into the league for the first time, but I didn't think that would quite work. But I think what would work is if you changed it. So if you kept the maybe younger than 25 award, um, but maybe say, if you, and you've played less than 50 Premier League games before, the season started or something like that because then you would get a true um breakout young player that you could give the award to and and not to you know harry kane again or whatever <laughs> whatever might happen um so i if i'm looking at 
this award this season, like for me, Trent Alexander-Arnold would be the perfect winner. But perfect, mm. I think that what he's done, he's come through. He's really uh, made the right back spot at Liverpool his own, and he's he's looked really, really good, and often wins man of the match quite often, and and often stands out in a team that where the attack is normally praised. I think he's really stood out at the back. So I think he he would be a perfect winner for it this season, and would fit all the criteria, and wouldn't look stupid as like a Harry Kane or a Gareth Bale did in years past. I think that would be a much better better way to do the award. I think it has to stay as like a young player though. I think that works quite well alongside the player of the year. But I, I do agree maybe um there should be some more criteria in games played or um maybe if it's I, I don't know what else could possibly be used. I think games played is probably the best one to use alongside age. If if you couple them together, you'd probably get a more worthy winner of the award. It would probably mean a lot more as well. Uh, because if Harry Kane was young player of the year and doesn't win player of the year, then it's, it doesn't uh, it doesn't really mean a lot at the end of the day. Yeah, I definitely agree with um, with Jake. I, I I hadn't actually thought of that idea um, where you could maybe cap it off at, at fifty games um, or something maybe before the season starts. That is that is a good idea. I think I think if you marry that up to the fact that and and then maybe bring it down um, to to twenty three. I think if you if you're going to finish the season finish the season over 23 then I don't think you should be able to be involved in it and then if you couple that with starting the season with less than 50 appearances I think that I think that'd be a good sort of dual criteria to to sort of bring this award back into relevance because there have been there have been a a couple of strange winners down the years and if with Harry Kane now being involved it would be silly if he didn't win it but it's also going to be silly if he does win it I mean, Harry Kane's obviously had, had another great season. I think he's done 25 goals just in the Premier League. Um, but his inclusion in itself, for me, just looks a bit daft. Um, yeah, when because... he's been nominated for actual player of the year the last two years exactly. as well. <laughs> exactly. And I think a couple of years back, I think something similar happened with Gareth Bale, although I'm not 100% certain. Um, but I'm pretty sure he was nominated for both. And, and won when, both. When such a, and 12, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so th- there you go then. But um, when it just when someone so senior gets nominated, and that that obviously comes back to Jake's point about the um, number of games maybe at the start of the season, the number of appearances, it just looks it just looks daft. And uh, also coming off the back of Harry Kane taking Ericsson's goal, it's just been a really strange week for Harry Kane and Tottenham fans. So it's just just looks really silly at the moment. <laughs> okay, all right, let's do this. I wasn't gonna do this. <laughs> But let's do this. Okay, first of all, he did claim it was his goal. That obviously happened. But an impartial panel said that it touched him. I it was, At the time, I said I didn't think it touched him. But I genuinely, genuinely do not understand why this blew up to be such an insane thing. When Because if he claimed it, then it's ridiculous. Because at the time, it didn't look like there was. But then people confirmed it. And so now I'm curious as to why this is still a meme. I think it's because, um, it, I think one of the criteria that they used for awarding the goal to him was that it was his testimony. And his testimony was that he swore in his daughter's life or something. It just sounds ridiculous. So they've used that, that, that as if like it's got some weight to it. I mean, on the replays, to me, it still doesn't look like he touches it. <laughs> but I, I'm honestly not bothered. Salah's going to be top goal scorer anyway, so. Agreed. <laughs> I don't think he's going to catch up. I just, I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I thought this was the news story that I've cared about the least. 
yeah, since I've started just, covering the Premier League. I was like, how I did this get so <laughs> big? I know, because there's this weird beef between Liverpool and Tottenham fans this year, which is really unfortunate because I have a lot of Liverpool supporting friends, uh, yourself included here. Um, also, on the actual side of that, uh, it's worth noting that Tottenham players are the most bonus incentivized players in the Premier League per contract. And if you think that Harry Kane wasn't making that bid because he was set to make a million plus extra pounds, I think you're kind of missing the mark a little bit. But that's me just raining on everybody's fun. Um, <laughs> to finish up your point, Zach, uh, I agree with you that it is just silly that Kane is involved um, in Young Player of the Year because he's 24. Um, if if I was to say there should have been a Tottenham player, it should have been Davinson Sanchez, who much more kind of fits the bill of the mold Definitely. of the young player. Um, and he's been fantastic in matches. Obviously, the City match was kind of the perfect showing of both his strengths and weaknesses right now because his recovery ability is insane. Um, but he often is the reason why we need somebody to recover as well as he does. Um, but obviously, that'll come with time. But for a young defender, he's looked absolutely brilliant. I think your Trent Alexander-Arnold shout, um, Jake, is, is certainly a good one as well. Um, based on the criteria that you guys have put forth, uh, if you capped it at 23 years old, the nominees this year uh, would have been Sterling, Rashford, and uh, Sané, and Sessegnon. Oh, we haven't really talked about Sessegnon. We'll get to him in a second. Uh, if you capped it on 50 Premier League appearances, uh, then it brings it all the way down to just Sessegnon and Ederson. Sessegnon, of course, with zero Premier League appearances uh, due to the fact that he has been uh, in the championship there with Fulham. Um but I, I do think that either of those are, are much more accurate. I mean, 25, saying that's a young player, I think ignores the fact that the prime of Premier League players has been getting younger and younger. I mean, as recently as like the 2010 World Cup, I guess it was, we, you, people were in their prime in, when they were 27 or 28. I, do, do, you guys, do you guys agree that now the prime seems to be around 25? Um, I guess it differs on the position and the player. Everyone peaks at different ages. Rooney is probably the best example for somebody peaking young. Uh, and there have been other examples as well. It all depends on when you make your breakthrough. Um, like it's sometimes it, it surprised me how old some players are. Like Jesse Lingard's quite a surprising one where he's, he's sort of mid twenties already. Yeah. It's only now that he's sort of breaking through. So it could be someone like that can go on at, at his current standard a little, little bit longer than, than a teenager breaking through. I guess it all depends on the player, but I, I do agree to an extent. I think the, the athleticism and, and pace and power and that, those sort of things having more of an effect on football as opposed to pure technical skill. I think, and that probably plays into why people are, are peaking a little bit younger, but then you can look at, he's obviously a once in a generation footballer, but Cristiano Ronaldo, he's seems to be as good as ever. And he's well into his thirties now. So, you know, it, it, it all differs with the player and, and, and the, where they play and what sort of style of play, uh, style of the tactic they play in. It all depends. But I, I guess there's a, I do think that sort of the athleticism and, and those sort of physical attributes are coming more into play in football. And that's probably why there is some credence to that argument. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also something to do with uh, like the sort of the advancement in, in the understanding of the science behind it as well. I mean, obviously, since, say, Wenger came in for Arsenal, um, science and diets and stuff has been, uh, and Julier as well, just a little bit after, these guys have been pushing it pushing the boundaries for the last 15 years, 20 years. And Guardiola is also coming in now. Uh, Liverpool and Klopp have got a massive sort of like nutritionist um, team behind them. Um, and I think, I sort of think that because we can now like, we understand the the, the body in an athletic way so much better now, we, we can sort of bring the, like the strong qualities out sooner. So if, for example, last season, Trent Alexander-Arnold was 18, 
and now he's 19, so it's only like a year's difference. But he he just looks when we started preseason this season, he just looks bigger. And Origi, when he was with Liverpool last season, he's down on at Wolfsburg, but he he was the same. And it's it seems that like we can take these younger players who are probably still boys basically, and turn them into men quicker with the training regimes, the diet regimes, and the understanding of the science behind how to make that the perfect athletic body. And then obviously that gives more chances um, in game to 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 be performing at, at the top level skill wise because if your fitness is high when your energy levels are higher then you can keep you know you can maintain your, your skill level for longer in games and through the season so I think it's something to do with that and I think that's what's seen the um, sort of like the prime age sort of come down to like mid twenties rather than say twenty eight twenty nine. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that's probably also why we're seeing younger and younger players making their debut and, and kind of getting consistent minutes. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with all you guys there. And I think that those are some good ideas, either a 50 match limit or um, an age of 23 to just kind of bring bring that a little bit back down, make the name kind of have something meaningful again. Also, for what it's worth, this is me complaining about the structure of the Young Player of the Year when Tottenham have won it five of the last six years. So that's when you know it's broken, when the people that keep winning it are like, all right, this this is just getting kind of ridiculous. Although I will say Della Ali winning it the last two years I think was interesting, although I think that could be an additional rule, is that maybe you shouldn't be able to win it multiple times. Um, just because you'd assume that if you've won it two years in a row that you've probably hit that 50 matches, but maybe just add that as a caveat in case uh, they didn't for some uh, odd reason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, next up, we're going to touch on the uh, relegation battling sides. Jake, you'll be very happy to hear that you are not involved in this segment um, just because uh, Newcastle with another win seemed to have been... Uh, finding their way further and further up the table and further and further away from danger. So we're just going to quickly run through the teams that are down there, I think from about 15th down, and then we'll just uh, quickly go through and say whether or not we think uh, they'll be staying up or going down. Uh, We'll start with Brighton and Huddersfield since they're level on points. For me, I think they both stay up. What do you guys think? Um, It's an interesting one. Um, I think Brighton, I think it it depends if you think 35 points is enough and it it may or may not be. I think it it needs Stoke or Southampton to sort of pull off some really good results. Yeah, I think if you look at um, the Brighton's fixtures coming up, they they do look really tough. And that's why when they got up to sort of the points they were a couple of games ago, you thought that maybe they need to get there because they've got Tottenham, Manchester United, Manchester City. Liverpool and Burnley in their last five matches. And you could easily see them taking zero points from that. I may, whether or not they were, it remains to be seen, but you could very easily see that. And if that is the case, is 35 points going to be enough? Um, 
currently got seven points on Southampton and eight points on Stoke. So you need two of either one of those teams to sort of go on a run. And it's tough looking at how they're playing at the moment. I think Southampton, they've shown, uh, we'll get to Southampton, but I mean, I think Brighton, I think both teams probably need one more win or a couple of draws to sort of get them really safe. I, I think they're on, if they don't get any more points, they're in danger. But I, I think with with the amount of matches left to go, they're probably still going to get a couple more points from somewhere. So I think, yeah, I, I'd agree. They probably are both safe, but I think Brighton is what I fear for more, more out of those two teams. Yeah. And to your point though, Huddersfield, not exactly with a delightful run and Everton look a little softer lately, but they end with city Chelsea Arsenal as their last three which I'm sure won't lend confidence there, although their their, uh, last-minute win this week against Watford, obviously a huge boost in their favor. Uh, What do you think about these two, Zach? Um, I'm just looking at the table now, and I think think both teams probably just need one point, to be honest with you. I mean, Southampton and Stokes' league form is absolutely abysmal. I can only see that I'm on the other BBC website. I can only see the last five games, um, and both of them have drawn one and then lost four in a row. And they both just look beaten. Um, I think I, I'm more worried about Huddersfield, actually, than, than I am Brighton, simply because um, Huddersfield's goal difference is minus 27, which is oh, it's, it's 12 worse off than Brighton's, which is yeah. pretty horrendous. So I, say, I said one point that that would leave them both on 36, which would mean Southampton would need eight points. Um, Southampton's goal difference is somewhere in the middle of Brighton and Huddersfield, they're on minus 20. So if they d- did somehow get eight points and... Um, Huddersfield only got one point in these last five, sorry, in these last four for Huddersfield, um, then they'd go down. But I think they'll be fine, to be honest, if they just draw one. Yeah, I agree with you guys. Although it is worth noting that Huddersfield also had a negative goal difference in the championship last season and still came up. Um, So while it is a tie-break scenario, weirdly, it doesn't seem to affect their points totals, which is quite strange indeed. Um, Next up, we'll talk about West Ham. Uh, obviously, the David Moyes appointment has not really gone to type, but they've gotten a couple decent wins. Marco Arnautovic kind of leading the charge there for them. What do you guys think on this one? Yeah, I, th- I think they're probably going to be safe. I think there was some... I worried for them a little bit after... I think it was the Burnley game when they had the, the crowd pro- sort of the crowd protests and, and the fighting within the stands, which wasn't really a great look, and it was quite a, quite a sorry collapse on the day, but they got that big win over Southampton and they've looked okay since then. Uh, A good draw against Chelsea. So I think that they'll be fine. I think, I think the thing with West Ham is they might be fine this season, but there are big problems at that club and I can see them being down there again next season, regardless of what they do in the summer. I think they probably need to get rid of Moyes. They probably need to get a a few younger players in and, and because the business last time was a little bit too on the older players coming in. And that's definitely had an effect on them at some time, at some points this season. I I think they're going to be fine this season, but I, don't see a better future for them, in, in, especially in, in the short term. I think they're probably going to be down there again next season. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with Jake. I think they'll stay up this season, and then I think they'll be down there again battling um, next season. Uh, looking at the league table, I'm guessing they've not played this weekend yet, have they? Um, so they've got six games left. It'd be absolutely ridiculous if they didn't get at least one win out of those six. So... Um, yeah, I think I agree with, with Jake. Again, on the transfer activity, I think at times some of the signs that they made last season have looked a bit, have looked a bit leggy and you can tell that they've... I've always said that West Ham sh- should be um, targeting some to get some like some youth identity in the play. So bring a couple of lads in through the academy, um, such as Reese Oxford a, few, a couple of seasons ago, and then see if they can sort of develop a core of players that, that want to be there and fight and maybe get them into mid-table before 
they leave for maybe a bigger club in England. I don't know, Liverpool or Tottenham, whoever. Um, but yeah, I can't see any any changes. I mean, it, it seems like a toxic environment to be on, uh, to be involved in. Sorry, I, I think I was the last time I was on the podcast with you, Kev. We were discussing the, the crowd trouble at West Ham, and it, and it was just absolutely bizarre what was happening. Yeah. The apathy towards the owners um, really seemed to reach a high pitch, and it seems like. The, the only way is down sort of thing um, in terms of the direction of the club, which is unfortunate because they are obviously they are quite a big name in the Premier League. Yeah, and we've said multiple times in the summers that it just seems like they're just a mismatch of players, that there is no identity, kind of as you pointed out there. Um, and if they can get that identity there, the talent's there. I mean, we the reason why they keep staying up, although there was that down year and then back up year, um, the, but the reason why they've kind of stayed around the same level is because they have enough talent to stay where they are, but not enough to improve. I mean, unless they have someone like Payet that, you know, obviously Payet more talented than Arnautovic and so was able to drive them further up than Arnautovic is currently able to drive them. Um, But yeah, that's always been my issue uh, with this West Ham team as it's most recently been constructed is it just seems like 11 random players. So I I completely agree with you guys. I do think they're safe now. Uh, I agree with you guys, but uh, not really sure that's a bright horizon. Um, and maybe if they went down, they, there might have been an ownership change, which long-term might have been more healthy for them. Uh, but I think they'll stay up regardless. Um, next up is Crystal Palace. Got a massive uh, derby win this week against Brighton, which they needed. They were trying to hold on to a late lead, which is something they'd conceded in so many of their previous matches. Uh, do you think this might be enough to tip them over? Or are you still a little worried for uh, Jay and those boys over at the Eagles week? Uh, I'm, I'm, I've not really been worried about them at all for a long time. I think they've, the, the quality in their squad, they've easily got the most talented squad in the bottom half of the table, maybe, except Southampton. Uh, and I've never really been too worried. I think the win at the weekend was was a massive one. Um, and if we're talking about individuals, Wilfred Zaha deserves a little credit for what he's done this season because I know this is right until a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if it's still correct, but all the points they've earned is when he's been in the team. I don't think they've earned a single uh, point. Every, every win. Or... Yeah, they, they yeah, haven't oh, won without okay. Zaha. Never won without South at heart, so that's fine. That's that's still an incredible record, and it the reliance on him is a little bit worrying because whether or not he'll stick around for the long term is it's another thing. But I, it's it's been a, a very good season for Palace outside what the board did. So I think what Hodgson's done has been really good. I think maybe they probably should have kicked on a little bit earlier. Uh, there was sort of a, a faltering period where they got dragged back into it, but their remaining games, Watford. Uh, Leicester, Stoke, West Brom. Like I could easily see them winning three, if not four, all of those. So yeah, I think they're completely fine. Yeah, I agree. I haven't really been worried about Palace for a while. Um, I think once Zaha sort of got his fitness and his form back, um, I think they've looked a lot more threatening. I mean, Liverpool played uh, at Selhurst Park just two weeks ago. Um, we won two one with a late goal from Salah, but I was really worried about the fixture going into it. Um, because I know what the Crystal Palace crowd can do. And I also know that, that sometimes they can perform at home against the big teams. We've had a bit of trouble there in the past. Um, no less the 3-3 draw in uh, 2014. But yeah, I think they'll be fine. Um, Wilfred Zaha, um, uh, Mamadou Sako, they've got, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, Mili Mili Jojevic, I can't say his name. That's the one, yeah. They've got a decent um, little crop of players there. I mean, they need a better striker because Benteke's big chance miss record this season is absolutely ridiculous. 
but I think they'll be fine. I think I think they'll win at least two of those games that um, that Jake mentioned, uh, if not three. Yeah, agree that they should be just about fine. They have one of the easiest run-ins the rest of the season, so you do assume that they would be safe. Although you make a great point with Ben Teke, he has just been absolutely woeful. And <laughs> recently, Roberto Martinez uh, was listing the uh, strikers that they need to try to fit into the Belgian squad, and he wasn't even listed. So that's about how far he's fallen down in that setup. Obviously, one of the more talented national sides out there. Um, All right, next up, we're going to be talking about Swansea. Now, this is where things start getting dicey for me. I I agree with you that Brighton and... uh, I think Brighton are fine. I think Huddersfield could maybe get pulled into it. Um, But Swansea is a big question mark for me because their defense has largely been why they've been okay thus far. Um, losing Vanderhorn, I think, is a bit of a blow because they had such established that back line that you know they kind of became more than the the uh, parts themselves. But now that's gone. They do finally get Jordan Ayew back from his suspension. He does score the goal that gets them the point here. But it's a couple of draws that are probably disappointing in a row there for Swansea. How do you think they'll end up? I I, I agree. It's going to be interesting with Swansea. I think they're the probably the team that are in most danger and, and that's why they are where they are in the table. The difference between them and Southampton and Stoke though is that they managed to pick up points and a point doesn't go a long yeah. way in the short term, but they 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 haven't won in their last four, but they have taken three points and those three points have given them, you know, they've got a five point gap, but if they lost all of those they'd have a two point gap. But it, it, their ability to sort of pick up points in games and not lose them is probably why that five point gap does look quite big the the next two fixtures are Manchester City and Chelsea so if they did lose those two uh Southampton over the same same sort of period have got uh Leicester and Bournemouth so we could see that gap close and at that point it'll be interesting but one of these last three games uh Bournemouth away and then Southampton and Stoke at home so you know they, they've got it all in their own hands and I think even if it went down to those last two home games I think Swansea would be confident of staying up I think it could get nervy, but they, it would need the other teams below them to sort of go on a run, and, and it will get. But I think they should be fine from where we stand right now. But it's not, it's it's not secure by any any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, look, looking at where they are um, with the five point gap, and then the final two games at home against two rivals that are below them. You know, you would say that they would be safe, but. Southampton and Stoke, if they've got even a sniff of staying up um, come those last two games, they're going to be fighting like dogs to get anything off Swansea. That's going to be a really interesting end uh, to the season. I didn't realise that um, Swansea's final games were that yeah, were that important. That is yeah. huge. Um, obviously, Bournemouth um, Bournemouth will probably be safe by by then. They're, they're on 38, so I think, that, I think Swansea might be able to spring a surprise in there. Even though it is away from home, uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. That'd be a massive game if they could if they could somehow sneak a win over there. But yeah, uh, I think I think with the two with the two home games at the end, I think they'll definitely have enough to get through. Um, if they, I can't see them losing either of the games um, with, with that with that defensive sort of um, protection that they've that they found of late. Hopefully they'll be they'll be able to grind grind out two two draws at least uh, to keep them above the two teams below. Yeah, as you said, it, you would rather be Swansea than any of the bottom three right now. With that five-point gap, it's clearly in Swansea's hands. As long as they don't mess up their thing, nobody else can catch them um, since they play two of those teams still. So uh, I, I like Swansea's chances, but I am a little concerned, although they came back from greater odds last season. 
Um, and you certainly wouldn't bet against Carvajal picking up those points, which you say, although um, the recent performance is largely why some Swansea fans are not expecting that he will be their manager come next season. Uh, now we're into the actual relegation zone teams right now. The first one is Southampton. Jake, you kind of uh, gave us a little sneak preview of what you were thinking here. They have put in uh, challenging performances the last three weeks, but have not been able to pick up the win. And it seems as soon as anybody scores one back against them that they then just start to crumble, uh, which is a very concerning characteristic to have Characteristic to have at this point in the season. Yeah, it's, it's, it is worrying. Southampton are probably the most interesting team out of this bottom half because I think they've actually not been that bad. They, I think recently they've been pretty bad, but before then, I think they've just been very unlucky. They've won five matches out of 33, which is a horrendous record, but the 13 have been draws, and it's the small margins that have left them there, and I think losing games and enjoying games they perhaps should have won have compounded on their confidence. It's sort of just become a self-fulfilling prophecy that they lose these matches, even though they're not that bad. Um, one XG table under stat.com has them down at 10th in, if you look at XG points. So, you know, they're 10th um, and, and Swansea are bottom of this particular table. So it's, if if you're looking at those sort of stats, and if you, if you believe in those sort of stats, you think Southampton have a chance even at this point. But it, I think at the weekend, it wasn't losing to Chelsea that was the bad thing. It was the way they sort of collapsed and lost that game. Again. Chelsea weren't pushing. It's, they they didn't look threatening at all. It was just this sort of three goals happened and it, it didn't Chelsea didn't play well to get back into it. They didn't push you know, push any more men forward and put them under a lot of pressure. It was just it was just a very just poor way to lose a game and it's that that mentality that I think is probably gonna cost them uh, I don't think the, the cup semi-final is really going to help them at all. I think that's that's quite a hindrance at this point now, uh, given their position. But the next three games, you know, the next four games, they've got they've got Leicester away, Bournemouth at home, Everton away, Swansea away. It's I wouldn't want to, want to be them going in on the last day needing anything against City. But those four games, if you could hand-pick four games, they're probably four games you'd go for. Leicester have are on the beaches they don't look like they care they've they've really got they've really declined in recent weeks and their results have it's only Vardy doing anything but the defense is not keeping keeping out the goal so he's very what he can do is is very limited Bournemouth away and not a good team they're not too great on the road they're much better at Dean Court so I think that's one that's around to win Everton Again, they they're a bit like Leicester they don't look too great and then if you if they go into that game against Swansea with the chance of overtaking overtaking Swansea. I think that's huge. So I, I could see them doing it. I think they've got the players to do it. I think they've got they they've got the games to do it, but I don't think they've got the manager to do it. I don't think he's he's the right person to get them out of this. I think they're probably still going to go down, but I think they've got a chance. I wouldn't be writing them off just yet. I think they they've definitely got the quality in the squad. It's just it's I don't think they're a bad team. I just think it's it's not gone their way at all, and it's it's probably going to result in relegation. But I think they've got a chance. Yeah, I agree with quite a bit of what you just said there. I think Southampton aren't that bad of a team, and to be honest, until about a month ago, I didn't really realise how bad it was going for them. They sort of they were sort of sleepwalking into into this relegation battle um, since the start of the season, basically. And obviously, it's it's culminating the fact that they're now five points adrift at the bottom. Um, I do think when when I saw the rundown and, and you asked us to look at the um, at these bottom bottom of the table clubs, I did write down that I think these three are the ones to go down. Um, 
I think Stoke and West Brom have been absolutely abysmal. And Jake mentioned that the Southampton team isn't that bad. But at this point, with Mark Hughes as manager, I don't think they can, they're going to be able to turn around. I mean, a lot. Of, I think when, when the appointment was made, I, I read an article, in I think it was with The Guardian, about how Mark Hughes' um, points per game sort of... Um, it takes a while to get going in terms of results. And when it does get going with whichever club is with Blackburn Stoke, um, it, it does turn out to be quite, you know, quite good, like a mid-table team. But at first, whatever ideas and whatever style we attribute to, to Mark Hughes, it doesn't seem to materialise very quickly at all. And I think, if it, I think, I feel like if the board had fully understood that and imagined that Mark Hughes was going to, refer to you know go back to type with the, with his points per game taking a while to get going and I don't think they would have appointed him I think but saying again you who who else could they have got it's it's a tricky one I feel like it was a catch-22 um once they got into the position where they were going to have to change manager then I think it was probably already too late at the time I actually did feel like it was too late to be doing it um, but yeah, I, I think they're going to go down. I feel like, like Jake said, I think they can win any of the four games at the end of the season. Um, the, the, as you say, Leicester absolutely on the beaches right now. Swansea, they, they've they've been poor as well, but but Swansea are at home, so it's it's a tricky one. But I, I still think they're going to go down. Uh, I'm actually quite glad, you know, because if they're in the championship, then how many good players can they sign for Liverpool to eventually <laughs> buy for an inflated fee? So yeah. That's kind of works in my favor, I suppose. But yeah, um, I think they're on the way down. Yeah, I'm kind of glad you you brought up uh, Southampton and their players because uh, by my count, uh, right before this, I just jotted down some names. Players that I think would stick in the Premier League if Southampton went down. Austin, Tadic, Buffal, James Ward-Prowse, Lamina, Cedric, Bertrand, and Romeu, And then maybe Redmond, Forrester, and Hoiberg. That's an 11. So how are they so garbage? This is my, well. this is my question. <laughs> I mean, I know I basically made the argument earlier with West Ham, but Southampton have not had those team-building issues in the past. Like Southampton, while they've been selling their best players to Liverpool, have just replaced them year on year. And I don't think the people that they replaced this year are any particularly worse than the ones that they've replaced their star players that have left in years past. It just has not worked. And I kind of see where you're coming from, Jake, that they've just been unlucky. Although I think that particular XG stat really shows more play style than overall ability because Swansea tend to defend more than attack so of course expected goals isn't going to lean their way but um it's it's just it's just baffling to me I'm the answer is management it has to be because it's kind of like West Brom where there's talent here there's no reason for them to be all the way this far down unless it's mentality leadership or management and and I think it's kind of a issue of all those three um I agree that I don't think that they're going to stay up just because of the way they're going down the mentality doesn't seem right for them to make that late push if they got one result maybe that changes the mentality quickly um so I'm saying no they won't stay up but if they do it'll be in place of Huddersfield all right, uh, the next two seem fairly straightforward. Uh, Stoke, in particular, for me, have offered basically nothing since match week one. Um, aside from, did they win or did they draw against Arsenal, like week three or four? Anyway, aside from that, they've done very little uh, to make a splash at all in the Premier League. Of course, Mark Hughes, uh, responsible for them as well. And it would be incredible if two of his teams did go down this year. But I assume you guys think both Stoke and West Brom are pretty much locks to go down despite West Brom's win today? 
Yeah, I think so. I don't think Paul Lambert is, is very inspiring appointment at all. I think like Southampton, they've got some good players. Um, but I think it's, this has been a long time in the making for Stoke. I think they've been a declining force for a while, and um, I'm not at all surprised it's gonna it's gonna end badly for them. If you're really looking at it, if you're trying to find a reason why they might stay up, I guess you go Shakiri. You look at their games. They've got West Ham tomorrow. Then they've got they've got Burnley, Liverpool, Crystal Palace, and Swansea. They're not the worst set of games. They're they I know Burnley are flying, but they're a team even now that you could go in thinking you can get a result if you turn up. Um, it's they're not the worst set of games but I just don't think they're going to win it many of them if any to be honest they've just been awful for a long time and I just can't see that changing yeah I definitely think these two are, are locked in to go down I will make a bold prediction though and I will say that West Brom will beat Liverpool um, so yeah I'm just going to make that prediction even though Liverpool are flying and I think we're absolutely unbeatable at the minute <laughs> unless we're playing United and Mourinho Um so yeah, I think I think that for me the, the the bottom three is locked down. Um, as you say, there is talent in in these teams. I mean, West Brom with Krakowiak and Johnny Evans, they're quite good players. Stoke City have got Shakiri, and then Southampton. You literally just named an eleven. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just not gone their way. Unfortunately, it's a tough league. Yeah, I, I will say um, we had Dan on for a segment recently and he was talking about how if West Brom do go down, he doesn't see them coming back up soon because they're going to obviously scrape their squad a bit. But I think there's enough talent there um, to to turn things around. Although I do think uh, it could be an issue if uh, ah, I forget their caretaker manager's uh, name who just got the United result. I'm a little worried that they may just stick with him because you you can hang your hat as ownership on this result and say this is why we kept him, I do think they probably need to bring in somebody else if they want to be successful. But I do think that both of these sides are going down. I do not see Stoke challenging to come back up anytime soon. I think West Brom may. And if Southampton go down, they still have enough talent. They still have a decent enough academy that I think they'd be back sooner rather than later. Uh, but yeah, I think Stoke and West Brom, unfortunately, both going down. Well, one of them I think is unfortunate. Um, but I think West Brom may be the ones that pop back up. All right, now we're going to jump into quick questions for each of our guests since we've already uh, passed about the 45-minute mark. Um, Jake, we had on uh, Jamie earlier this week talking about how Sean Dyche um, should absolutely be a consideration for manager of the year. Uh, we all pretty much know it's going to go to Guardiola for their historic season, which we started the show with. Um, but considering what Rafa Benitez has done, you could, in fact, land a top 10 finish, which is something we talked about before we hit record. Uh, just how impressive is Rafa Benitez's performance this season, considering that you haven't really added in key positions? And do you think he should be in, in with a shout for manager of the year? Oh, 100%. I think I think he, sh- he, he should be a contender. I would probably put Guardiola and, and Daesh ahead of him, but I think he should definitely be talking about what he's done. It's, it's, it's been massive. Um, not... We, you spoke about Southampton, Stoke and West Brom and their potential chance to come back up. I think if we didn't have Ralph Benitez, we probably wouldn't have done. So he firstly did that. And now he's, if we finish in the top 10 of the Premier League, that is a, a miraculous achievement with the squad we have. He got a lot of criticism for um, the way he acted during the summer and talking about um, wanting new players and people saw that as a dig on the ones he already had. I don't think that was the case. I think he knew that the squad needed investment if they were to sort of challenge at the top and avoid a relegation battle. Now it looks fine, but it's definitely been one that we, we were in a relegation battle for a little bit, but he's, he's got through the other side. And it is the progression of the team that's been most impressive. Like um, with, with managers in the past, it, it's, you struggled to see what was happening on the training ground, what was actually going on. But with, with this team, there's been a, 
definite improvement uh, before Christmas uh, and even after Christmas for a little bit. There were games that we should have been winning, but, uh, but we were conceding late goals and just, just costing ourselves. But our game management has, come, has, has got a lot better in recent weeks. We look like a Premier League team now. He's got the best out of he's sort of got the best out of players that perhaps other managers haven't done. Uh, uh, John Joe Shelby be the best example of that. Joseph Perez in recent weeks is another good example of that too. I think he's gone a long way to to getting us back where we perhaps should be in the top half of the Premier League. It's a long way to go to, to stabilise ourselves there. But I think with with Rafa, you can see what he's doing, and, you, and he's just he's just a really really good coach. Um, like he's won the Champions League with Liverpool. He's he's done other things at other clubs. Valencia, he did quite well. He did all right at Chelsea for a short time, despite being hated there. But I think this this achievement with Newcastle is quite a big one. It's not winning a Champions League, but from where they were, like no other coach of Rafa's pedigree would have taken that job. And the way he's he's stuck at it, it's not all gone his way. But he's he showed his class in the end, and I think it he's just enhanced his reputation a lot. And I think. It would be a shame if he didn't continue this job. I think whether it's Mike Ashley or another reason, I think he's he's really just building something special here. And whether that results in a cup or or a top six finish one day, who knows? I just think he is building something, and it's one block in his development. It's another block, and it's it's a bigger picture of Rafa. Yes, he's he's not done better than Dice this season, or there's better candidates. But I think what he's doing overall is a job on the whole for what he's done for the last. Two two years now, I think it's difficult to really say that he's done a bad job at Newcastle and that he's a, a bad coach. I know there's some people that have said it in the past that he's a little bit overrated from what from what he's done in the past, but I, I think that's complete rubbish. He, he he's done a great job at Newcastle. I just couldn't speak highly enough of him, and I I just still can't believe he's our manager to this day. Yeah, all credit certainly to him. And I know in January we were talking about um, how you would handle potential relegation since you weren't adding any players at the time. So. Uh, to look back now, that seems uh, pretty foolish. But at the time, it, it was a genuine concern. Um, Zach, coming to you now, obviously a huge week. You progress in the Champions League. Um, just how impactful was this week for the future of Liverpool Football Club? I think this has been an absolutely huge week um, for Liverpool Football Club. It's probably the biggest week that we've had since... Well, since since 2014 when we played City in Palace. Um Obviously, that, that ended in tears, but this week, I've never felt so much positive energy being directed towards the club from the fans in in, in, in different mediums. So, um, obviously, Twitter, um, in the ground, outside the ground, um, speaking to other fans, whether it be my family or whether it be um, when it was on holiday this week, for example. It, it's just an absolutely amazing time to be a Liverpool fan. I mean, it just the optimism is just next level. I mean, a lot of rival fans tend to point to Liverpool and laugh because apparently, none of us say this, but apparently every year we say, oh, it's going to be our year. Well, maybe next year it will be, but who knows? Maybe this year will be um, in terms of the Champions League, but honestly, the the optimism right now is amazing and, and, and the energy that it gives you when when you want to talk about football or just in, just, you know, just in general, I mean, life's just better, isn't it? When your football team's like, it is, it's just it's just boss and our team is, is boss. Like we've got, we've got star players all over the pitch and we haven't had a team like this since 2009, basically. I mean, 2014 was largely on Suarez. Sterling, Gerrard and Sturridge were, were pretty good, but it was pretty much on Suarez. This year, I feel like, obviously Mo Salah's got 40 goals, but I feel like if we, if we didn't have him, then like Firmino and Mane would have a few more and it might balance out. Maybe we won't be on 70 points, but I feel like we wouldn't be as bad because I feel as if, 
when problems are, are sort of like cropping up, I feel like Klopp is identifying them and repairing them, which at first I didn't think he was going to do. I thought he was going to be sort of like Brendan Rodgers and the fact that he was blind to the defence and the goalkeeper. But it seems that sort of in his mind, he didn't want to bring Karius in until he got Van Dijk. And I think he was he must have been confident of getting him in January because he did sort of like wrap Karius up in cotton wool until then. And I think since he's come in, um, Karius, I think Liverpool have been a lot better. By by all means, he's not the perfect goalkeeper and he's still not proving himself. But he, I think he is creating a case for the fact that he won't, you know, we won't need to spend on a goalkeeper in the summer. And then Van Dijk's come in and we've got the three guys up top and people in midfield are just in great form. Milner, um, Cham before his injury, Henderson played absolutely unreal yesterday. Uh, Oxley Chamberlain has just absolutely butterflied um, since the turn, since Christmas, basically. So yeah, pro- probably by the fact that how fast I'm talking and how excited I sound, you can probably tell <laughs> that yeah, it's been a great week and we're all super excited. And it's just like you can't wait to the next game. Um, you know, bring on West Ham. Uh, sorry, West Brom. Bring on Roma. Let's see what we can do with the rest of the season. Let's see, let's see if we can be if we can get past 80 points and let's see if we can get to a Champions League final. I mean, a Champions League final. You would never have thought that was possible at the start of the season. Yeah, I think a big part of that is, um, A, you've developed players in positions that were ones of weakness, like left back and goalkeeper, the development of Andy Robertson, which was a great buy at the time. And we, you know, we had the HCAFC Tiger Link people on for two of the last three years. Um, and so we, we kept talking about how talented Andy Robertson was. So I don't think listeners of this show will be particularly surprised at how well he's developed. But then you mentioned Karius obviously has come on leaps and bounds there. Um, you lose Nathaniel Klein, who for me was always a little overrated. Um, he goes out with injury. You replace him with Alexander Arnold and Joe Gomez to an extent, although I think he's meant to be a center back. Um, so he develops it right back. Then your issues are you, you get rid of Coutinho at the time. People said you were giving up on your season. Um, you replace that in central midfield with the surging running of Oxley chamberlain instead of pure creativity, just kind of leaving that front three to do their thing. Oxley chamberlain fills that central midfield gap. Then you buy Van Dyke, which fixes the defense, which we talked about at the time of the purchase. The point of buying Van Dyke isn't because he's better than everything that Liverpool had, which is wasn't even debatable. It's that he can improve the level of those around him, and I think his presence has helped the development of Alexander-Arnold um, and Robertson on the left. And I hate to say it because the only reason anyone ever, but ever says that Lovren's done well is because he set the bar so phenomenally low that if he manages to get through a match without tripping all over himself, people give him a 6 or 7 out of 10. But Lovren has had some decent performances since Van Dyke came in as well. You can see him constructing the line anytime anything's happening. Um, as soon as the attack gets going, he's always communicating with those around him, trying to line them up. Um, and anyway, getting back to the point, I think this week is massive for the future um, because this week is the kind that you can sell huge players on as a project. Um, because for years, Liverpool, like Tottenham, have had to buy younger players and then develop them in-house. Um, and then sometimes you have to sell them, like a player like Coutinho. Um, but this kind of week is where you can go to any player in the world and say, this is what we're capable of. This is the stage that we play on. You want to play at Liverpool. And obviously there was a historic pull already, but that's the kind of impact on the field that things like this week uh, can have. All right, now we're going to wrap up with match previews. I'll start off with uh, Tottenham. Obviously, we play Tuesday against Brighton. Um, disappointing match against City, but hopefully we'll uh, rebound a bit here. I do think we're going to see some rotation. We've been doing it with our wingbacks, um, so this should be the Aurier and Rose side of that uh, switch off. Although uh, Rose is dealing with a slight calf injury, um, so he, it may be uh, Davis that keeps that spot. 
We've also been uh, rotating our defensive midfielders between Dyer and Wanyama, um, so expect that change as well. Also, Lucas looked just amazing in his last uh, 15 or so minutes against Manchester City. I wouldn't be surprised if he's given a shot here. Um, we always knew this was going to be a slow build into the 11. Um, I-, I can totally understand why people are just uh, crying out for Lucas to be starting because of what he's done uh, in his limited appearances, although it's worth noting that bringing on a pacey player against a tired defense is not exactly revolutionary and isn't exactly exactly something that you can build an entire opinion on a player based on but he has looked very good uh but people saying that they think lucas is going to start i think are looking at the wrong side of the pitch i think it's son that's going to get back into the 11 uh after missing out against manchester city with lamella favored um we will probably see kane as he chases that golden boot uh not to bring that up again but i do think salah is, is going to be able to keep that one all to himself um but all in all i think we're going to be all right in this one we need a win though uh kind of what jake was talking about earlier if swansea uh drop points then that gap closes and then that narrative starts both inside and outside of the club um with us losing to city and chelsea pulling out their win against southampton now it's seven points uh, where we should be fine, but we just need to get a win to kind of reseal that coffin um, after they kind of lurched out of it a little bit here at the weekend. Uh, but I do think we win. I'm going to say 2-1, though, because we keep considering soft goals ever since Toby's been out of the squad, and I could do a whole show on that myself, but maybe a later day there. Um, next up, we'll come to you, Zach. Uh, you're going to be traveling to West Brom. Uh, obviously, no Sturridge because he's a lone player from you. Uh, but obviously they'll be riding a bit high off of Manchester United, or are you thinking maybe they'll uh, celebrate a bit too much and you'll be able to catch them on the incredible form you're in? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we're coming into the game in great form, but um, as as I mentioned previously in the show, I actually feel like we're going to struggle against West Brom this time out. Um, Klopp's points per games during the 12.30 kickoffs uh, since he came in is is 1.6, whereas, um, let's say, a half-five kickoff or a half-seven kickoff and around those times, it actually rises to about 2.3. So we traditionally struggle in these fixtures because we tr- during the week we train at like five o'clock um and I, th- I feel like our body clock and our rhythm um is he, he's deliberately designed it around like that that kickoff time so it's sort of like between champions league games but also between the three o'clock kickoffs so usually when we're in those in that time period we're a much we're a different animal Pops, um moaned about it on a couple of occasions um before the derby a couple of weeks uh, last weekend uh, he mentioned it then. Uh, that was nil nil. Um, the one before that was Palace. We narrowly won two one against the team, obviously fighting relegation. So yeah, our record in these fixtures isn't great. Um, I think we actually lost to Newcastle like either last season or the season before. Sorry, not last season. It was the season before, obviously, because Newcastle weren't here. But yeah, that was that was another example. So um, I feel like we're going to struggle. And um, we've got quite a few injuries. Uh, Lovren limped out the other day. Uh, Emery Chan is still injured with his back. Um, I feel like we may slightly rotate um with um the front three um you know Ings one of Ings or Solanke to come in for me um he's not tended to do that but Rome is the one after that in three days time so I feel like he might rest say a, a Firmino um those front, th- uh, front three their minutes are all like plus 3,000 so across the season so a bit of fatigue would be a bit understandable um Milner will probably uh, come back into the side um, as well for one of Wijnaldum or Chamberlain, I would expect. Um, Henderson's our only fit number six, so um, I expect him to start again as he did yesterday. Um, Other than that, can't really think of anything. Yeah, a few injuries, but I expect a tiny bit of rotation. 
Fair enough. And then, Jake, we're going to wrap up with you. Of course, Newcastle traveling to Everton, but as we've discussed earlier, seems like you're about safe. Do you think we'll see you kind of pushing or maybe he's off the gas a little bit? I don't think a team managed by Rafa Benitez would ever step their foot off the gas. allowed to step off the gas. I just don't think so. I just he's such a perfectionist. I don't think he's a manager that just let, let complacently get into his squad. Um, he'll, 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 they'll know that he'll want to strengthen. People will be playing for their places. We've got three players on loan that all of them have, have spoken about wanting to stay at Newcastle. So you've got that element of it as well. And and, and even this fixture, it's got quite a nice, a couple of bits of narrative that are quite nice. Um, of course, there's his Liverpool path, so he, he would love to go to Goodison and get the three points. If we win, we'd go above them. So there's another, another little something to the game. And if you've not read about the, the weird relationship between Rafa Benitez and Sam Allardyce, it's well worth getting read up on because it's, it's it's such a weird rivalry that doesn't make a lot of sense considering they're not really coaches that compete in the same areas of the league until until now now uh, but he is the manager of Newcastle but there was a point when he was uh, Real Madrid manager that he was asked about uh, comments in Sam Allardyce's autobiography about how he wasn't uh, he did nothing in the, the Liverpool Champions League triumph and that, that that was lucky that it was on his resume or something along those lines and since then they've just they've just had a bit of back and forth they 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 don't like each other so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens on the touchline as well as what's on the pitch I think I think we're in good form at the moment we we beat Arsenal today I think we've won four in a row now if you look at the the form table in 2018 I think we're probably I think we're in the top six I don't have the numbers to hand but I think we're in the top six for for form in 2018 so I I could really see us going to Everton and get a win I wouldn't be surprised if we, we just seem to have clicked out clicked into gear there's the incentive of maybe finishing as high as eighth, um, which would be incredible. So I, I just can't see us, I can't see us losing to him. I think we'll definitely get a result, and I'm going to say on current form we'll probably win. All right, that'll do it for us today. So if you'd like to tell the folks where they can find you, now would be a good time. You can get me on Twitter at Jake Japan with two ends. Um, I write for APL Index and the Boot Room, so check both those sides out too. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter over at Zach Forster underscore. Um, many, many statistical ramblings about Liverpool and how boss we are. Hashtag no pyro, no party. <laughs> and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, at Kevroff on Twitter. Uh, you can find me over there. You can also find my writings over at Goal and Goal Betting uh, for fantasy and betting stuff, respectively. Um, also, I do live text commentary for Omnisport, so if you're interested in any of that, check that out. Uh, and obviously, you should listen to our fantasy and championship shows on this very channel. Not sure when the fantasy show will record this week because it is a weird one uh, schedule-wise. Um, because we have Premier League matches all the way through Thursday. Uh, the championship show will be recorded Tuesday and go out Wednesday. Uh, thanks to you guys so much for joining us on here, and we hope you keep listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.